Looking for a good book? Or need tips on writing your own book? Need help with publishing, self-publishing or more information on audiobooks? Welcome to Authors and More. All your writing needs under one roof. So my guest today is Dr. Baroness Newlove, broadcaster, public speaker, author, Tory peer, pro-vice-chancellor of the University of Bolton, former Victims Commissioner for the UK and Wales, and Deputy Speaker for the House of Lords. Wow, welcome, Dr. Baroness Helen Newlove. Hello. Hello. Helen will do, though. I'm fine. Helen will do. What a mouthful. That's incredible. What a CV you've got. You should be so proud of yourself, the, the things that you do. Well, when somebody reads out, it's good. But I think when I think anybody's really, when you have to describe yourself, we're, we can't sell ourselves. No. I think especially women, isn't it? We can't sell ourselves. So thank you for the grand bio. I'm very proud of what I've achieved in 11 years. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, it's so lovely talking to you today, Helen, and congratulations on your book, which is It Could Happen to You. So for our listeners, I'm sure everybody remembers this story, but for our listeners, let's just let's just recap and remind ourselves of that fateful day back in 2007 that completely changed your world. Yes, I mean, it's 14 years ago, which shows you how time flies, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it ever stops make you know thinking so in 2007 it was a Friday summer's evening and we heard some noises on the road and as usual Gary was uh, uh you know I shouted down to Gary and I said could you go and check what's going on I was upstairs because I wasn't very well so I was upstairs but he was down with Amy who was 12 at the time I think it was Britain's Got Talent, which I, I really can't stand myself, but there you go. Yeah. Um, so that's how I know he was. we were doing that. And it was a Friday night trying to relax. And so he went out. And the reason why I asked him to go out is because our neighbour next door, her baby, uh, she had a young baby and her husband was working away in Scotland. So she had like a small garden digger out in, in the front garden and we'd heard like glass being smashed. So that's why we asked him to go out. And I never, ever thought he would never enter that house, that house again. And so I, I heard noises and rumbling, but I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, because we had regular um, noises like this on a Friday and um, you just got used to it. We didn't like it, shall we say, but we got used yeah. to it. And so Gary went out and never came back in. And it was only when Amy came running in and shouted, screaming at me to, you know, you need to come out and ring for an ambulance that I didn't understand why I was ringing 999. And I did, uh, but I didn't know what to tell her. So I just presumed somebody had hurt themselves, like broken an arm or a leg and they needed an ambulance. And I just had, so said to Amy, calm down, you know, everything will be fine. And now, you know, when I went out and I walked down the street, I totally get why she was where she was. And oh so sorry, Helen, you didn't know it was for your husband at the time. No, 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 no. She came running in and said, you need to call an ambulance. And she was going on about Gary, you know, dad, dad, this. And I just thought, oh, maybe something's happened and I was something like that. So I had no idea, but she was that panicky. I, I, it wasn't making sense. Yeah. So I was trying to calm her down as, as a mother does. And sadly, she you know, she collapsed at the bottom of the stairs and our oh. neighbour, Amy, who's also called Amy, who Gary went out to see what's going on. She just said, you need to go outside. And I still didn't, you know, you, you don't think anything. You just say, all right, I need to go outside. And so, I, you know, I was kind of, I was hobbling because I've, I've injured my ankle and um, 
and then all of a sudden it was like walking out on the street and I heard all this commotion and I could see Zoe stood on her own because when Gary went out, uh, Danielle and Amy went out because that's how we always used to. Even the dog yeah, went you go out. out together, yeah. And Zoe was coming over from IKEA. She had a, a job there, and she walked out as well to see what was going on. And um, it was just absolutely something like a film you see in a horror movie, you know, or where where the film around you goes slow and you're like treading jelly and basically I say even today after 14 years Zoe became the mother and I became the child that went to pieces I mean she was just a superb well they all were Danielle did CPR on because Gary was on the ground um that's what I've got the vision of him lying on the ground and uh, not moving and then the neighbor's husband grabbed hold of me and said I wouldn't go over there you know we need to keep you over here an ambulance had been called for by the neighbors and uh, the next thing is the ambulance came and Zoe's boyfriend, Tom, who was a first aider for being a personal trainer, was doing CPR on Gary because there wasn't a much of a pulse. And um, I might well just, you know, I just went into panic, screaming, shouting. I, I don't really, really realize, didn't realize what I was doing. No. And, and I just collapsed on the ground. So it, the ambulance came down the road and I went to get in the ambulance and that's when it became even more serious because they sh- they said no we need to shut the doors He's, he'd gone so they needed to sort him out so you couldn't um, go with him at that time no I couldn't go with him they they kind of locked him out and said we need to work on Gary with there's a problem um he's kind of flatlined and of course then I'm thinking well I can't go with him how do I know what's going on with him and and this is like you know it felt like hours and it probably wasn't hours but it did feel very much like oh my god and I was phoning my family you know my mum bless her my dad was in a care home my mum saying you need to get around here she doesn't drive and she's elderly what you know you phone your mum the fact is that you know it was I couldn't get to him that was the problem um and just when I heard there was no pulse that's when you kind of think so it was just one of them nights where you think I just you know nothing was going right but I wasn't it wasn't me that was there if you get me yeah, it, was it wasn't real no and the neighbors were brilliant and then when they were working on Gary in the ambulance I, I was shouting I don't know why I did was you know um you know don't hurt him you know Gary had had stomach cancer at 32 and so he had to learn to eat again he'd lost eight and a half stone in a week and he he loved his family and he was getting over that and, and he always said nobody's having any organs you know they've done enough in my body at the moment so I'm saying, don't hurt him, he's had this. And then the next thing, it went off. And then I couldn't go with him in the ambulance. So Tom, who was Zoe's boyfriend at the time, his car was parked uh, in, in, a, in the neighbor's drive. But because it was part of a crime scene, I had to wait for the inspector to give me permission to go to the hospital. And that again felt like, this is ours, this is ours, this is ours. And so I just broke down and I said, you know, he's, he's going to be dead when I get there or something's happened. You know, it was just horrendous. And you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, to be perfectly honest. Bless my mum when I got to the um, A&E. My mum was there with an elderly friend who drove her. Oh. And um, all I wanted was a glass of water. And there was no water in the hospital, believe it or not. I had to, I didn't want a can of Coke. I always remember there wasn't a glass of water. And... Um, so they made me wait and then they asked me to go to the family room and the games simpleton that I am in a sense you watch casualty and you know what that family room's about 
and I'm crying. I'm saying, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there. You know, so they had to coax me and my mum and, and everything. And then my sister came, who was a, who was then at the time, um, a theatre sister. So she knew exactly. And she demanded a glass of water, bless her. They, uh, they said I could go and see Gary um, for about, you know, about a minute or so. He was that bad. And um, so my mum and I went in and it was just horrendous, you know, to look at him from, he was barefooted because it was a Sunday, a summer evening in short. So he hadn't gone out to do anything. He'd gone ask, ask a simple question. And um, you looked at him there, it was fine, but it's like you went of the lower, in the higher the body, there was a footprint on Gary's forehead, which has always been denied in court and wow. um, that there was not one there, but it's not something you make up, you know, it was no. there and he was in a terrible state. So, he was so delicate, you know, we had to leave straight away. And it's when he gave me, you know, the rings and everything. And I'm saying, put them back on, you know, there's nothing wrong. And from that, that moment of going out to the Sunday when I had to turn his life support machine off, it, it's just something you wouldn't wish on anybody. He was too delicate to move. There was too much. Uh, he was in his, um, he was, had a bleed on the brain his brain was dangling like a piece of string and he was too delicate to move to the head injuries in I think it was in Walton so they kept him overnight the staff were in tears the staff were wonderful and Gary was on a ventilator and he started to breathe against it which gave me a bit of hope yeah. but when you find out of consultants um, that that means nothing um and then they moved, they did find a bed in intensive care the next day. And as they moved him, then he was bleeding again. Um, and so, you know, there was only one way this was going to go. The saddest thing was he was in intensive care for his cancer. So he was in the same side bed where he was. And when he, he was in there having his cancer, he heard somebody crying and he thought it was me, that the news was bad. And so he, he wore glasses, Gary, and uh, he had no glasses on. So he made me come right up to his face so he could test my eyes. He wasn't crying. Uh -huh. uh, so that's the saddest thing is to watch what I knew I had to do. And, yeah. you know, to, to hear consultants mention a crime scene, which then I'm thinking, uh, and the coroner, I hadn't taken that into any account. It's surreal, um, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine even picture what you're going through what you went through back then because like you say you think you never think it's going to happen to you you're just a normal family doing your normal stuff on a Friday evening mm -hmm. hear a commotion outside and I remember it quite clearly and I can picture him as clear as day and I actually thought he was a teacher but he wasn't was he no Gary wasn't a teacher he worked in industrial heating up um, ever since I met him actually industrial heating so he was a sales director he'd done it for many years and that photograph you have to give the police a photograph so that was the only one yeah. and then they get they leave you alone basically in a sense so yeah so it's still you know still when you see it it's quite yeah um, and how upsetting. old were your how old were your daughters then Helen in 2007 they were Amy was 12 yeah. Danielle was 15 and Zoe was 18. And at so, the time, did they have any reason to think that dad wasn't going to come home? They didn't on the event, on the night of the attack. They, uh, I didn't see them on the night of the attack after I'd gone to the hospital, I should say. 
because obviously in the background, the police were interviewing them. They're taking the clothes off with blood stained. And to me, they're my heroines for doing that because I'm in the hospital and they're only young children. Yeah. Even though Zoe's 18, you know, what they saw and I didn't see the attack. I learned all these things afterwards. Um, I'm really proud of what they did and, and they had many interviews. So Amy wrote a letter which was printed in the media. Uh, right, <clears throat> excuse me, when I went back on the Saturday, because I wouldn't leave Gary's, this was a Friday night, the attack, on the Saturday, I didn't want to leave him, but the consultant said, go, just go home, I have a shower and come back. And when I went back to them, they're all asking questions. And then Amy wrote a letter to her dad, because we were going on holiday on the following Wednesday. And she was saying like, you know, I'll push you around in a wheelchair and because he was a sun worshiper. And she said, I'll put plenty of sun oil on, you know, just we need you to come back and, you know, we'll look after you and all that and we'll look after mum. And so that was heartbreaking. And then when I went back to the hospital with this letter to read to Gary, which I did, that was when things had changed. The, the sister came to see me and said, you know, it's not good. And you can either take a photograph to show the girls, which some people do, and that's fine, but it's not what I would have would like to have done. Or you could, you know, you want to bring them in. And I thought, well, you know, that I'm not one to say, no, you can't come in. And I didn't want them to remember the dad on the ground. So I went back home and that's when I brought them in. Yeah. And Zoe was angry, upset. She walked out, which couldn't, and Amy and Danielle was just in bits. And Amy kept saying, why can't he talk? So I had to explain that he was, you know, he was sleeping with medication. But obviously, um, Zoe being the eldest knew exactly what was what. And yeah. uh, she just had to walk out. So, I you, know, it, to, just... you know, sitting down with your daughters and having that conversation. But tell us about Gary. What was Gary like? Gary was... I met him when he was 20 and he was a fun person. I'm not saying he was the Pope and our Mother Teresa here, <laughs> but he was a fun person, very, you know, a social person, people person. He was, he liked music. He was a DJ. So he did a lot of weddings and everything. And if anybody sat down when the music was playing, he'd drag them up and, you know, he'd get on the floor, he oops upside your head. He'd do all, you know, Saturday night dancing. He was very much a, a jokey, dry wit person. And, um, you know, he was a family man. He loved his daughters. And sadly, you know, now I think about it, he used to say, I can't wait till I get older. They can just pamper me, you know. And yeah. so he was just like anybody else, you know, working hard, trying the best for his family, um, just like any other family, really, in a sense. But, yeah, he was, you know, they, they adored their dad. And, um, you know, we did everything together as a family. You know, we even went to the hairdressers together or the dentists, because I hate dentists. <laughs> Me too. And, and, uh, you know, I don't think it ever gets any better. But when you've had a bad dentist when you're young, you know, it's like, I'm not going. So we'd all <laughs> go together. And so we were very close. You know, we, we did everything together in a sense. So losing Gary wasn't just losing him the way we did. It was a huge part of our lives that, yes. you know, that was going to change forever as well. He will be so proud of what you've done with your life since then as a result of his death. And you've started so many campaigns over the last 14 years. So you've got the UK's binge drinking, because at the time 
tell us about the 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 teenagers because they did get life life sentences didn't they they did at one stage there was 15 people around gary because what happened on the night as he went out he asked them a simple question who damaged the digger and who damaged my car because i'd heard them kicking my car so you know the kicking yeah. sounds if you can describe it that way and that was always you know for people listening we always had trouble with antisocial behavior on the road you know on a friday night there was full of cans people urinating they'd either break all the wing mirrors on every car up the road because it was a subway you could cut through and um and i'd lived there since i was 18 so I, I couldn't understand why it was going like that and then i moved back when i got married um further on but the, the fact is that what happened with gary was asking one question and being attacked and punched and kicked to the ground he was in the middle of another part of the gang so he'd gone to ask a question and because he uh, because they didn't like it they punched him in the face but because gary was quite fit he did karate and he was six foot two he didn't really go down and so adam's swellings at the back of him uh, need him in the kid you know he needed him in the back and that's when he went on his knees and that's when they continuously kicked him in the head and punched him you know that was that's but these that have all been drinking heavily haven't they yeah so that was that was why i thought what you know how could you do that yeah. and then i found out they were you know on skunk drugs vodka they had just been on a total binge and gary was the third attack on the night that's what people may forget that yeah. gary was the third attack so they built it up to, to gary being the final act uh they'd attacked two of the young lads up previously and so for me the alcohol i mean there's a lot of alcohol and drugs at the moment but then it was more to do with alcohol not just the drugs and for me it was about is this the life that young people think is wonderful by getting drunk and doing things and a mother of three daughters you know you don't want your daughter being this there's, you know these consequences it's quite dangerous so i did get i did get involved and i'm still really involved with the alcohol companies with the way the police handled with you know with with alcohol finding out in warrington that the warrington town center where the clubs were there was more police officers there than if you had a trouble outside police you know outside of there there was no police to come and help so i wanted to learn and understand what was going on. So hence the campaigns about making our streets safer, uh, understanding antisocial behavior, because we did have gang problem. Um, uh, and you know, so much so that before Gary's attack, we the, you had community meetings. I mean, there's still some now, but they were all big things then. And I went with my neighbor, Eric, and you know, people, the fences were being set on fire, but we had the police, the fire service, but it was all coming out and youth workers saying, well, the youth, you know, the board and thinking, well, that's not an excuse to set somebody's fence on fire. So it was quite a heated debate. Yeah. And they were drinking <clears throat> beer though, weren't they? It was so they easy doing, for them so to was, access. Um, yeah, it was the cider, you know, white lightning. It was so easy to go. Underage drinking was big. Yeah. And also, you know, and sadly we're still hearing it today is that staff were being intimidated by the young people so they were fearful of not selling, not the selling alcohol them, yeah. to them uh, and you know i've learned so much about it but it was the access of cheap cider like white lightning um that needed to be taken off the streets and as i say that you know the, the whole point is that the police never tackled these 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 gangs on the street they were and then they were just moving these gangs along. So it's like a chessboard, really. Yeah. They weren't yeah. dealing with the root cause. They were dealing with what they could see first base. 
And also you wanted to help improve support for victims of crime, because at the time there wasn't a great support for you, was there? No, I, my background, I've always, I always love working with the law. So I've worked in the courts uh, before I had the girls, um, quite high end bit of law uh, of that side. I wanted to be a barrister, but having three children and bad health, it didn't get to that stage, but I've always been fascinated. And so knowing what happens in court, because I, I used to take evidence down in Manchester, uh, magistrate's courts years ago, I thought, oh, you know, this is what's going to happen. And I, don't get me wrong, I've been abused when you're a professional. I've, I've been abused in Manchester court years ago. I was called all the names under the sun. But when you're a victim, it's completely without your family liaison officer, which is a police officer, which I have to say were my rocks and my girls' rocks getting through this 10-week court trial. The fact is that you have no you have no, nothing. You're told information, how you must behave. This is what's going to happen. This is this. But actually, you have no voice. I gave a statement. They wanted a statement off me, but I didn't have to give evidence. And my three girls had to give evidence. So it was a case of Zoe was 18. And I think it's really people need to understand when in this, I think for anybody, the law in the land says when you're 18, you're an adult, but, but, where, they're, not you know, adults but they're not adults, no you know, no. and she was damaged for what she'd seen, you yeah. know, she, they had to pull the dad's tongue out the mouth, he was choking on the blood, they had to do CPR, you know, they'd seen all the punching and all the kicking, so she wasn't, you know, so, but she was treated like an adult, so the other two were seen as children, so they were separated by the system as well, so, the uh, Danielle and Amy were I video linked, so they would be in a in room in the back of the court, and Zoe was screened, going to be screened. At first, she wanted to face him, which that's a bit like a mother, you know. But I'm thinking, as a mother, you don't really want to face him because you don't know flashbacks or whatever. Yeah. And so you're kind of being led by information, so much information to digest that you don't have any thinking space. So it's only afterwards when you look at these things, why didn't you get this? Why couldn't we do that? And you're just on a kind of on a conveyor belt passing through. So there's no family rooms in courts. There is now in Manchester, but at the time in 2007 and eight, there wasn't those, they are trial rooms. So they've got video links in, so they could be used for another trial, which we were told that the toilets, you know, they're not, you've got, there's no separate toilet. So you could be kept away from the offender's family, but in a toilet, you could wow, be intimidated. Yes, there's not, the canteen is just one canteen, you know, and in the end, we had to bring our own food because it was quite costly, a 10-week court trial. But these are the things that could damage, you know, even a, a witness, you know, coming home from a court trial, you're not given any escort, we did. Yeah, but, you know, you think of another witness. Yeah. With, you know, in, intervene, couldn't they, or threaten, yeah, so you just don't know. I was watching things I was going on, and my family, you know, we were intimidated in court, we were goaded in court, we were goaded in the car park. It was amazing how the law didn't affect these families, and, and, and yet they had the best legal teams that you could imagine, they, there was five uh, accused in the dock. So each person had a QC, Queen's Council, had a junior, and then of course had a solicitor's team because 
you, the solicitor instructs the barrister, there's no contract, it comes from the solicitor. So you can imagine all that. And, you know, they were asked questions by all these five barristers. And it's, it's like a theatre. Um, and I could not say anything. I couldn't do anything. And, you know, my daughters went at nine o'clock in the morning to give evidence. And I couldn't give them a hug. I couldn't, you know, we had to have somebody, their, their godmother who hadn't been in court, couldn't give them any information. Now, albeit, I understand that, but she's not going to sit and give them anything. She only wanted to pass a sandwich. So, you know, and they're traumatised. And I kept taking, and I just thought, this is inhumane. No, this and the thing is, yeah, when you need your family the most and you need that reassurance, that hug, anything... Yeah, you know, that's when they need it the most, isn't it? Which the offenders can do that because they can see their families in a break or whatever. You know, we had the, the trial um, adjourned for a, a dental appointment. We had a we had to wait for the prison van to come. It was two and a half hours late. And there is under human rights, they're supposed to be given a break or a, a refreshment. But if they say no, they, they ask for the refreshment when they're in court. So it's delayed again. And so, it, you know, but in the meantime, my daughters were sitting in this room with an usher, not knowing what's going on. And of they're course, frightened to death. Frightened to death. I mean, that? you know, Worry. police officers say today, you know, no matter how many years they've done it, it's still intimidating for them. You know, when you go in quite nerve wracking. Um, so so that they have scarred the girls and myself because Zoe giving evidence always remembers uh, a piece of paper, which was a map. Uh, where it described Gary as Manet on the floor and then the offenders, the accused, round them. And, and she said, you know, when she came out, she just said, why couldn't they call him my dad? Um, and he was saying to one of them, was saying, you know, he was a bully, wasn't he? He was bullying them. And, uh, and she said, what, like you're bullying me? And I could have high-fived him for that, yeah. you know, and everything. Yeah. But the, the thing that really got to me was when it came to giving Amy's evidence, who was only 12, it was about half three quarter to four and the judge law justice uh, andrew smith who was very nice very courteous uh said you know i'll only take this now from her mum to see whether we take her evidence now or she's going to be too tired do we come back and i and i thought well that was quite nice but then on the other hand if the defense we were informed the defense could object to her coming home with me because I might give them, might talk to her. And that's the only time I would have been in contempt of court because there's no way they're going to separate my daughter overnight, knowing then she's going to go back the next day. But actually, uh, they didn't do it. Uh, I, the judge adjourned it till the next day. But it's still nerve-wracking for her to come back the next day and seeing her sister. So it's very inhumane in a sense, yeah. very clinical. Um, so... The things that I took in, I didn't have a vision to do anything else. I just thought this was absolutely disgraceful. Um, you know, the press have a box, the jury have a box, but the families don't. It's a public gallery and you can sit anywhere and do anything. Um, we were criticised when our police officer, these women behind us, were, were pulling apart evidence and, and the uh, the, our family liaison and I've said, would you mind, you know, this is the widow. And they went, well, who are you? And these were social workers behind us. For me, who's worked in a courtroom, very professional, to sit this other side, uh, it really opened my eyes. And, yeah. um, th you know, afterwards, you know, things led to other things and campaigns. So uh, this is the realism. And sadly, you know, 
we're still having these fights for, for victims and I'll never give up for them. So have you managed to make any changes in, you know, what's different today that maybe wasn't happening back then in 2007? Well, in two, today is different because we mentioned victims a lot more. In 2007, there was still that argument, do, you know, is it a witness, is it a victim? The downside is there's still not a victim's law, which I think that's the only thing, well, I not think, I do know, that's the only way that the, the playing field will be balanced, where victims have legal rights as well as offenders. And that's not to say offenders will, you know, be losing some rights to gain for the victim gets these rights. It's on a level playing field. Also, the court designs in the courtrooms are not fantastic. The acoustics and also, you know, there's not enough family rooms in our courts. But for, for me, it was being able to challenge the system as it is. But now we do, we do talk about victims. There is a victim's code, which there wasn't. There was a victim's charter, but now there's a victim's code, which is still not good enough because they're not legal rights, even though, as we'll discuss probably later on in my other roles, they say these are rights. They're not rights. They're just these, it's persuasive guidance as the professionals say these are just persuasive guidance um, there's nothing in law and if there's nothing in law you know you won't have the professionals arguing it because it's not in law so mm. it's as simple as that well anybody would be in a great place to have you supporting them and your campaigns you've got the binge drinking stiffer sentences for serious crimes and improved support for victims of crime uh, and also road traffic accidents where people have been killed, maybe by drunken drivers. But with all your hard work, and nobody should have to go through what you've been through, Helen, but you turned it around and you were awarded a peerage in 2010. So Baroness Newlove. <laughs> so how did that make you feel? And, and when did you hear about it? Tell us a story. Well, yes, that was a really strange thing. I mean, losing Gary, I got lots of support from, first and foremost, from the people in Warrington. They, they were great. And I then started on the political, because the political world, but I just see it as going, you know, I, I rant on and I moan and I do all this and, and everything. But the fact is that then you get into the political stage of, so I met Gordon Brown and he was interested. And actually Amy asked him a question, which would have been Gary's 50th birthday in Manchester. Uh, Michelle Ponty from Key 103 at the time, she, oh, yeah. she was part of it. And so um, it was about young people asking the prime minister at that stage, which was Gordon Brown. And um, Amy asked a question about sentencing, but she got quite upset. And I said, oh, is it, you know, is it too much? And she just said, no, he's the prime minister, mum. I've just realised he's the prime minister, you know, bless her, you know what I mean? So, you know, you've you kind of, that was amazing. And Gordon Brown was very, you know, very nice. And then I met David Cameron and, I, you know, he was in opposition at the time and we did a lot of conferences. And, and that's, you know, in the background, doing a lot of work with Warrington. And I was also doing documentaries, looking at prisons and, drinking for young people in families and then I got a call from David and I thought uh, it was a voicemail and I just thought he probably wants me to speak at a conference that's fine uh never thought and I just rang you back a couple of hours later and that's when he you know he said I think you'd be a great person to be in the house of lords you, you say it as it is basically you're a voice for people victims and I think it'd be the right balance but I want you to think about it and well, I, I had to think about it because I, I have to be honest, I'm just thinking, what does this mean? Um, I'm a working mum, you know, it's like, what do I do? 
Well, I'm still on the answer phone from David Cameron. And that's a yeah, phone yeah, message yeah. from David I know, Cameron. You go, oh, it's David. I oh, know, my yes, goodness, it's David Cameron. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just thought, without thinking anything. Back in a few hours when I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, and you can't tell anybody, you see. This is the point. You can't tell anybody. And so I did I did have a word with my mum, really, you know. And she said, this is marvellous. You can't turn this down. And so I said, yes, I'd, I, it's wonderful. I'd love to be able to do it. But you cannot tell anybody because it has to go through another system um which i made david laugh in the end because you they do background checks and i thought oh have i paid my gas bill have i paid my electric <laughs> bill what's my credit card like oh my god have i paid my mortgage thing oh yeah. god they've got a screw the payment yeah have i missed a payment you know we didn't there wasn't any of them credit checks that we get all now that <laughs> cost us a fortune to keep us under our toes and um you get a call from the leader of house of lords which was lord strathclyde at the mo at that time and he started laughing when I said that to him about my bills. And he said, no, it's if you've made a, a donation of, say, about six million, a couple of million. And I just said to him, well, I've had a couple of million. My daughters will spend it on Jimmy Choo's. You know, you, you know, <laughs> there's no way to go to the Conservative Party. Uh, and then you then you go to uh, the College of Arms, which is like Harry Potter. Now, that is that was wow. That was like something surreal because you have to choose your title. Well, you know. I've been a legal PA, I'm a mum, you know, what? I've never thought I've had to choose a title. So he was great to, to do that. So what so kind I, of I, choices did you have, though, when you say had to choose a title? Well, the title, you're going to be um, Baroness. It's uh, Baroness New Love, but it's of what? So whether I, because I was born in Salford, didn't want to be, of, you know, part of Salford. Uh, you can't be Cheshire because Cheshire's huge, you see. So he said, you have to be of a place. And um, so it's that kind of he helps you really when he says that because I just say to him, I really don't understand this. You're going to have to go through it with me, yeah. and he did. And that's when I, I said Warrington, uh, and that was you know that was a bit strange. And then that goes off to the um, prime minister, but at, which was Gordon at the time. But then at the time he called a general election, so it all gets halted. So we were the longest ones, eight months, there's a lot of us who were, who were, I didn't know the other people, having to wait for the election, because it doesn't matter if David didn't win or anything, it's the Prime Minister whoever's in, they all go to him, because he does from his, his political party, each one of them, so the Lib Dems, Labour and Conservative, and then they go to the Queen, so it's, it depends I on the see, day. Right. So even if Gordon got back in, it didn't mean you lose out. It just means he could pick it up basically and take it to the Queen. So we had to wait for all that. But I found out on Sky News because the ticker tape at the bottom was telling me I was going to be a peer. And then, of course, I rang number 10 uh, and said to the colleague, there, I said, I've not said, a I've not said a word. I've not said a word. And I hadn't had the green light. You see, you have to wait for this lesson. I'm thinking I'm going to be putting trees in already. And, um, <laughs> and he said, no, he said, it's fine. Don't, you know, don't worry, but just don't say anything. So there was lots of press who said, oh, you know, Helen, you love said this. I hadn't. Um, and that's when it, that world again changed to a different level. Um, and, it, and it, you know, it was scary, really, because London is a tourist place for me. Manchester is my town and Warrington, you know. And so to go to the House of Lords on an induction was the, thinking, oh, my God, I felt like Hilda Rogden, which a lot of youngsters haven't got a clue what I'm on about. But, you know, that child lady with the rollers in and I don't belong there. So it was quite... It's amazing, though. So you're a deputy speaker in the House yeah. of Lords and you took your seat in 2010 for the Conservative. Yes. And, um, yeah, so tell us about your role. That must be such an honour anyway. But what's life like being a crucial part of Parliament? 
Oh, so glamorous you put it. It's not glamorous. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> I mean, the first thing, to, you know, you get a title and it's lovely, but it's, you know, I have to say, and, I, you know, this is what now with this levelling up and the north and south divide, you know, it really, and you need a day job. It's just a title. You don't, you know, you need I to pay bills, whatever like that. Yeah. But it is grand. And I have to say what was quite funny when I, when you go and they call it an ennoblement when you're in, introduced into the house, that's where you wear the robes and you've got two supporters and everybody watches you. It's one of them things in an assembly where you don't want anybody listening to you. And um, you sign the writ for the queen, and which is beautiful. I've got a beautiful um, red case with a writ from the queen. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and so you get, oh, that's really nice. I call it ennoblement, really. It's when I go to schools and talk about this. It sounds like I'm being ennobled, you know, embalming, sorry, embalming. Get that. Then the, the, the system says that you go and take your seat. It's not a seat with your name. You just go and sit with in the Conservative because it's split up in the chamber, in the political parties. So when I did all that on my, uh, my ennoblement, when I was like a big girl, I thought, go in, I can do this. I can go in and just listen. Uh, I, uh, I goes and sits down and I looks up on these red benches and thinking the Queen's throne is on the wrong side to what it should have been. And of course, there's cameras everywhere. You know, I'm thinking my daughters are going to kill themselves with laughter knowing there's my mother. You know, and I'm thinking <laughs> I don't know what to do because there's do's and don'ts. You know, it's like anything when you go to secondary school. Oh, my God. You know, and everything. it's all new, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you're all surreal, new. really. So so the fact is that. Um, thinking how do I move and the doorkeepers who are the staff in the House of Lords I cannot say enough about them came up and said my lady you're in the wrong seat and I went I know I'm in the wrong seat <laughs> but there's cameras everywhere and I don't know when to stand up because if you stand up at the wrong time they go order order you know and everybody zooms in on you and he said, I'll give you the nudge. And then all of a sudden, I got these little tiny notes coming down this is the red benches and said, Lady Needle, whilst we'd love you to be, you know, in our party, which was the Labour seats I was on, um, you are on the wrong seat. So, yeah, so I'm a Bridget Jones. That was my induction into the House <laughs> of Lords. So how often do you have to attend at the House of Lords? When you're in government, uh, which that was coalition first and now the conservative and obviously different prime ministers they you have to more or less you it's called whipped business so when you're in government you really have to be there when it's you know in the chamber you have to um do your voting the whipping's to do with the voting so whipping isn't i always say to the, the kids in school it's not 50 shades of gray it's a, just a, a terminology politically where um, you are told, you know, you need to be in. We've got a one-line whip, a two-line whip, an extra strong two-line whip, and a three-line whip. And even if you're dying on a three-line whip, you've still got to go, which is more so like war time. So, yeah, so it's quite interesting how it's gone around with the work. Do you work on bills before they go to the House of Commons? Is that how it works? It can be either way. We can A bill can either start in the House of Commons and then come to the House of Lords, right. or we can start a bill in the House of Lords and goes over to Commons. Uh, so it's quite interesting how that, that works, the dynamic. And of course, I've read about legislation, but I've never worked on legislation. So, and I like to read and find out things and everything. So it's quite, it can be daunting yeah. because you're trying to grasp every bit of a bill which you can't do, You're, it's impossible. And if, it, if it's, you know, it, you, you're best doing bills that 
it's your area. So mine is justice, sentencing, all that kind of thing. And of course, you know, families is very important. But otherwise, you, you just drive yourself your nuts. But it's good to listen, but you don't always have to take part in that. Yeah. So and you can't take part in a debate until you make your maiden speech which is it's nice to get it over with shall we just say because you're out you've got, you've got like seven minutes to talk about you and I can sell ice to Eskimos but I can't talk about myself so have you not done is it maiden speech did you say if you're not done it's your a speech? maiden yes I have uh, I think Michael Heseltine was the only period took nine years I think to take his so you can vote but you can't get involved in legislation if you don't do your maiden speech right. so at the time I became the anti-social behavior community champion I worked in the home office and I made a report and that report they wanted to discuss and I said oh well I can't do it because I've not done my maiden speech and they went haha however we've got a slot the week before make your maiden then you can have a debate on your report which it it worked out very well but at the time it's like oh oh you know daunting like, oh no daunting. they've thrown it at me yeah, yeah. so it, it's, it's about explaining why you're there who you are and it's a way of introducing yourself to the house of lords yeah i have one question though isn't the queen's speech first delivered to the house of lords Yes, yeah, the house, yeah. she, well, because basically she's like the boss in the yeah. House of Lords. And so the, the reason why the, the Commons comes to House of Lords is because she doesn't enter. She's, you know, she's highest in the, the realm. So yeah. that's why they all come to the House, from the House of Commons into the House of Lords. Uh, and then she delivers the speech. So that's the first time everybody will hear it on the throne in the House of Lords. And that is the only time we wear our robes out of courtesy. You know, the, Everyone you go thinks people live in these robes and, um, you know, it, they are, we don't have them. We, you know, we have to hire them. You know, they're not cheap to hire just for a couple of hours and we pay them ourselves. And so, yes. And the one thing when the House of Commons does come into the House of Lords, they are really noisy. I mean, I've watched it for years on the TV and the noise is when you're there. But that apparently they have to, the noisier the better because that's tradition. Because I'm saying, how rude, you know. It will echo it's anyway, won't it? Yeah. yeah, but the noisier, the better. So it's tradition. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, it's been so lovely talking to you today, Helen. I could keep on talking to you. It's been <laughs> an interesting subject. And it's been lovely to hear more about Gary as well and the girls. And once again, congratulations on your book, It Could Happen to You. So for our listeners, where can we buy this book? Where can we get hold of it? Well, this book has been out since 2000. I think it was 2015. Yeah. And so I am in the throes of going, hopefully do another book of my journey politically and what I've gone on in my roles as Victims Commissioner. And uh, so, but you can pick it up on Amazon. As I say, it's, uh, you know, my mum's the biggest fan. She's always ordering them, sending out to family and friends. But and I do get people writing in and thanking me for, you know, it's just giving a background of it can happen to you, you know, yeah. at the end of the day and um, your life does change. And I just believe for me now, the pathway is to make something positive out something horrific and help others um, and the system to be able to, to change things for them. Definitely. Oh, well, congratulations once again. And it's been lovely talking to you and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Have a good time and a good day yourself. You've been listening to Authors and More. All your writing needs under one roof. If you have any questions, then visit my website at karenkellypodcast.co.uk or send me an email at letstalk at karenkellypodcast.co.uk. 
Authors and More is part of the Appetite for Life podcast series sponsored by Everything Genetic Limited.